Turn with me in your Bibles once again this morning to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Our study this morning will be on three verses, verses 18 through 20. While you're turning there, just to very quickly set this up, Paul has just explained to his readers that he was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And not only that, Paul says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, which as a result of his sovereign work of grace and salvation, becomes the chief defining characteristic of those who genuinely believe. Remember, in salvation, because we have no inherent righteousness of our own, sufficient to commend us to God, we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. This, of course, once again separates all of humankind into only two categories. We are either the recipients of God-given faith, clothed in Christ's righteous robes, or we are not. There's no middle ground. There is no in-between. There is no almost saved. There are none good. There are none righteous. No, not one. We are all innately from birth according to the sin nature that we inherit from our father Adam. We are all at enmity with a thrice holy God. And in order to be made righteous with him, we need a righteousness that we are simply incapable of mustering. We need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. What does Paul have to say about those who are not clothed in Christ's righteousness? Well, he writes this beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Once again, the word for here is used in a particular way. It's used to set up the explanation that Paul is giving to support his previous thoughts. He says, in effect, the righteousness of God is contained in the gospel for very good reason. And why is that? Because it's critical that the unregenerate, it's critical that those to whom Paul refers as being characterized by ungodliness and unrighteousness, it's critical that they understand that God's wrath abides on them. I don't know if this is a concept that is widely grasped in the church at large today. I don't know that the modern gospel is nearly as forceful as it should be on this very point. Every person who is without Jesus Christ, every person not clothed in Christ's righteousness, has the wrath of God abiding on him or her. Now it's helpful at this point, to understand what is meant by this word wrath. What is this wrath that every unbeliever finds him or herself under? Is this word just another word for anger or displeasure? It is, but it's more than that. We need to be careful that we don't do what we often do in cases like this, which is to equate God's perfection of wrath with our limited finite understanding of anger as an emotional response to things that displease us things that make us uncomfortable god's wrath is not the byproduct of fluctuating emotions god's wrath is 
predicated on his holy hatred of all that is unholy. We need to understand that. This is not a cause and effect sort of thing. God is perfectly wrathful. Well, wait a minute. I, I thought that God is love. He is. He's also just. He's also righteous. He's also holy. And his holiness cannot and will not abide sin. Two important passages came to mind when I considered this. First is Habakkuk 1.13. You know that, even though many of you might not know that you know that. It's where the prophet says, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. The second is Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are inclined to their cry, but... The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to wipe out all memory of them from the earth. Think of it this way. In Hebrews 12, 29, we're told that our God is a consuming fire. It doesn't say that he becomes a consuming fire when he is angered. It doesn't say that he will be a consuming fire to those who displease him. He is a consuming fire. In other words, that's among his other perfections. He is a consuming fire. And what does fire do to things that are flammable? It burns them. You know, I was thinking of uh, making s'mores, right? When you hold your marshmallow in the fire too long. Marshmallows are highly flammable. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but you stick it in the fire. Dana loves them this way. I mean, just, you know, the blacker the better. Just as long as it's not falling off the stick, just put it on my graham cracker, right? Marshmallows are extremely flammable, but the flame does not burn the marshmallow because it's just predisposed to anger toward the marshmallow. Some of you are laughing as if that's absurd. It is. But this is the way many people think about God. God is not a consuming fire. He becomes that whenever circumstances dictate that he be that thing. No, he is a consuming fire as one of his many perfections. It's who he is. And if you are without Christ this morning, you are in a highly flammable configuration. Were you to approach the throne of God even now, in accordance with your own sense of your worth or your merit, you would be burned into oblivion in a second. He's a consuming fire. That's who he is. Understand that. The simplest way to understand the wrath of God is a perfection, as opposed to a simple emotion is to remember that God is perfectly righteous and he expects perfect righteousness from those who believe. It's a binary equation, folks. There's no gray area. No in-between status. Which is why it's necessary that any claim that we make to salvation be proved genuine by our being clothed in Christ's own perfect righteousness. Anything short of that level of perfection is deserving of God's wrath. And here's the thing. Any presentation of the gospel that doesn't begin with the fact that fallen man is subject to the eternal wrath of God and cannot be saved apart from being found in Christ alone, any presentation that leaves that out is not an accurate biblical presentation of the gospel. It's just not. And yet how often is the gospel not only misrepresented, but completely redefined by many professing believers today. According to a growing number of those calling themselves Christians today, the gospel 
is simply the good news that God loves you just the way you are and wants nothing but his best for your life. You've probably all heard that before. God is a God of love. God wouldn't harm a hair on your head. God just wants you, more than anything, God wants you to love him back. He wants you to be saved. As I read on one popular Christian website this past week, the gospel is simply this, they say, that God loves you and he wants a relationship with you. But is that true? Folks, it's just not true. Number one, the God that I worship gets exactly what he wants. Number one, the God that I worship doesn't want for anything. He is God. And he is sovereignly in control of every molecule in his creation. He doesn't want for anything. So it's patently untrue. Right at the start. Now listen, there's also a flip side to this. I realize how difficult it is to say to people, God hates you. And unless you're in a right relationship with him by being clothed in the righteous robes of Christ, you'll experience his wrath forever. And I suppose in some hyper-Calvinist circles, that's the way the gospel goes. God hates you, you filthy sinner. The only way he'll ever love you is for you to be clothed in the robes of his son. But isn't that exactly what Paul's saying here? Some of you might be thinking, hold on a minute. Where do you get the idea that God actually hates sinners? I thought God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And if that's what you think, you too have become an unwitting victim of the modern gospel. Let me give you two verses that I hope will enable you to think more clearly about this issue. The first is Psalm 5. Look at Psalm 5. I'm going to wait. Turn there. Scroll there, whatever you do. In Psalm 5, beginning at verse 4. Note again how David says something very similar to what we just read in Habakkuk. And from the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. Psalm 5, verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Now, be careful. He does not say you hate all iniquity. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Again, note carefully that it's not man's evil deeds that God hates and abhors. He hates those who do them. Psalm 11, verse 5. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Again, it's not the violence that the Lord hates, but the one who loves violence. By way of contrast, down in verse 7, David writes, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And don't forget God's own declaration with regard to Jacob and Esau. He says very clearly, Malachi chapter 1, which Paul repeats in Romans chapter 9, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. And I know you hear it all the time. People try to be God's PR department, and they try to come to his aid, and they say, well, it doesn't really mean that he hated Esau. It does. He hated him with a holy hatred. How can he do that? He's God. If you're still not convinced, just think about it this way. God doesn't send sin to hell, does he? No. Hell is the eternal abode of impenitent sinners. God doesn't send sin itself to hell. He sends sinners to hell. He sends those who are not clothed in the righteous robes of Christ to hell. 
Folks, let me just say, if we can't grasp or if we refuse to grasp this most fundamental element of the gospel message, we've missed the whole thing. There's no shame in telling someone. You know, I've, I've used the analogy of being out on I-35. Somebody's out there just walking as if there's nothing happening on I-35. We know there's all kinds of things happening on I-35, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But you see a guy out there walking down the center stripe, and you see a big 18-wheeler coming. What are you going to say to that person? Move! Right? You're going to arrest their attention. I know I probably just woke some of you up. That's good. Wake up and stay awake. It's going to get better. But if you see an 18-wheeler bearing down on someone in the middle of a highway, what are you going to do? You're, tell, you're going to tell them to move out of the way. Why? Because you're about to get smeared all over the pavement. Why soft sell the gospel? Why not tell people, look, I'm no better than you. I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. You can be saved by that self-same grace. You are in a danger that your mind cannot comprehend. You're in an eternal danger that your finite mind cannot grasp. But I know a way by which you can avoid God's eternal wrath. The gospel actually turns out to be the most loving thing you can give people. You'll be labeled a hater, right? How dare you? Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, I'm not judging anything except what the Bible tells me I can judge. And that is, I judge that you are outside of Christ. If I'm wrong, please forgive me. If I'm right, it would be irresponsible of me and unloving of me not to tell you that you're in mortal danger. Eternal danger. Now look, I'm not suggesting that we preface every presentation of the gospel with God hates you and would just as soon kill you than look at you. But we do need to tell him what the word of God says. You're in danger. And the only way to escape that grave danger is for the Lord himself to do a sovereign work of regeneration in you and then to clothe you in Christ's righteous robes. Now don't miss how carefully and intentionally Paul defines the very thing that results in God's wrath. There are many who have been taught to believe, wrongly, that salvation depends on a tally that God keeps. You ever hear this? God keeps a, a ledger. On one side of the ledger are all of your good works, your good deeds. On the other side of the ledger are all your bad deeds. And as long as at the time of your death you arrive in heaven and the things on the good side add up to be more than the things on the bad side, you're good. God weighs that in the balance and says, well, you've done more good than you've done bad, so come on in. Folks, that's just not true. It's not in any sense true. Namely, on the basis of what Isaiah himself said, under inspiration, about the nature of our good works. We think we're doing good works as unregenerate people, but what are they? They're filthy rags. They merit nothing in the grand scheme of things. God requires perfection to enter into heaven. So there is no ledger, even if there were a ledger, if you had one little mark on that bad side, it'd be enough to condemn you forever. How do we know that? James 2.18, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point becomes guilty of all. So again, even if God did keep a ledger of good deeds versus bad, you could have a hundred million things on the good side and only one thing on the bad side. And he would tell you, depart from me, I never knew you. Some of you might be wanting to argue at this point. Well, if that's the case, when I sense the time drawing near for my departure, I'll just make sure to clothe myself in Christ's righteous robes and it'll all be good. But is that how it works? No, 
In fact, Paul's going to spend the rest of this letter explaining why that line of reasoning is simply not grounded in the truth. Before he does that, though, he first wants to demonstrate just how deep the sinner's depravity really is. You know, as Calvinists were sometimes ridiculed for believing in the tulip, total depravity is the T in the tulip. When we say that man is totally depraved, we're not saying he's utterly depraved. By the grace of God, the common benevolence of God, we're not utterly depraved. We're not as bad as we could possibly be, but we are totally depraved in that there is nothing in us by nature that would commend us to a thrice holy God. We're in Adam, sinners like the rest, and the only way that God will be accepting of us is if we appear before him to be perfect. It's the only way. But Paul goes on here to talk about just how deep this depravity runs. And just as a heads up in the remainder of our time together this morning, we're going to see that Paul's initial concern. Now, it's important that you understand what I'm about to say. So wake up for just another minute. Paul's initial concern is not with whether the unregenerate man is able to believe unto salvation, but whether or not he's even willing to believe in God to begin with. He's starting at the the most rudimentary, fundamental level. We'll talk about believing unto salvation later as we go through this, but for now, he's talking about man's unwillingness to even believe that God exists. Look at it with me. At the end of verse 18 and into verse 19, Paul defines for us the systemic cause of unbelief. Now again, Paul's not referring to man's inability to secure saving faith. Matter of fact, just as a parenthesis here, we know that man cannot save or be saved just by wanting to be saved. Man cannot Just believe unto salvation. This is something that God grants. We read about that throughout the New Testament. Man is, in fact, unable to secure salvation for himself. John 6, 44. Remember what's said there? Jesus said, no one can come to me. That's a statement of ability. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 14, 17. We're told the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you do know him for he abides with you and will be in you. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And why is it that the believer or the unbeliever can't secure saving faith for him or herself? Because, as Paul said in those immortal words of Ephesians 2, they are dead in trespasses and sins. And that's another point that we emphasize a lot, and we should. Man's natural condition is not that he's sick in need of a physician. It's not that he needs the medicine of the gospel to make him well. He needs the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit to bring him from death to life. That's it. So if it's true that man cannot in and of himself know God salvifically, then what does Paul mean when he writes that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, quote, suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. It's simple, really. Paul is speaking of those who, because of the depth of their depravity, because of their desire to absolve themselves... From any and all accountability for their own sins, they've sunk to the level of denying God's very existence. There's no greater depth in terms of knowing God. There's no greater depth of depravity than that displayed by the so-called atheist. 
The one who has gone so far in pushing the truth down that he'll even deny God's very existence. What Paul's saying here, basically, is that atheism is impossible. Atheism is impossible. So why are there so many who insist that they're atheists? Because they're knuckleheads. They are guilty of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress here literally means to hold down or to bury something that one doesn't want to acknowledge. You ever wonder why criminals hide bodies? It's the same sort of thing. The same word is meant here. They want to get rid of any evidence that might exist to accuse them. The so-called atheist wants to press down any truth about God that might hold him accountable for who he really is. The atheist is like the child, and I believe I even admitted to being this child one time. I was convinced when I was a little bitty boy that if I just simply closed my eyes, and it was better to put your hands over too, the darker the better, right? I was convinced if I couldn't see you, you couldn't see me. What was I doing? I was suppressing the truth in unrighteous behavior. I had done something bad. I didn't want you to see me, so I just shut my eyes and put my hands over my eyes, knowing that you couldn't see me. The atheist is a lot like that. The atheist has reason that this God, whoever, whatever it might be, he might be, cannot hold me accountable if I refuse to believe in his existence. That's really strange, by the way. I mean, think about the folly of atheism to begin with. Seriously. What kind of person in his or her right mind argues so vehemently against that which he insists doesn't exist? There's probably some kind of psychological diagnosis for that sort of thing. But it's fascinating, is it not, to see just how far man will go in his denial of what Paul says is the truth that God has provided to every man. Paul leaves no room here, no wiggle room for the atheist. He says categorically and under inspiration, every man knows. This is why David wrote in both Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's the height of folly. To prove this very point, to show just how foolish a denial of God's existence is, Paul says, that which is known about God is evident within man, for God made it evident to them. And it's true. As one commentator helpfully noted, ungodly men and women are continually, actively, willfully, deliberately restraining, hindering, and withholding the truth about God. He says, grammatically, the active voice here indicates that this is a volitional choice, a choice of their will. They know God exists. They may refer to him as an invisible force, but deep inside, they know there's a creator of everything. And yet they hold down that truth in their mind. Why? Because if there is a God and he is righteous and he is a judge, then I cannot behave any way I please. But if I suppress the truth about him, I can behave badly and not have to give an account to him. At least that's the tragic deception. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, at least I'm not an atheist. But you know, there's something that is just as bad as actual full-orbed atheism, and that is practical atheism. That is living in such a way as if God doesn't exist, or in such a way that he doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Practical atheists want to be comforted by the notion that there's something or someone up there who can help them when they feel they need it, but who allows them to live any way they choose. In other words, most of them will admit that there is, in fact, a higher power of some kind who's responsible for creating everything that exists, some sort of ethereal, unformed benevolence that just floats around 
in the heavens who can be summoned like a spiritual butler whenever they need him. But when not summoned, this being is expected to stay out of their business. Think about the number of people that you probably know. Some of you here this morning may feel this way. God is there when I need him. Otherwise, he needs to butt out. I've known people who believe this. I know people who feel this way. And in a certain way, this is characteristic of many Arminians. I don't mean to paint with a broad brush. I know a lot of Arminians who uh, love and fear the Lord and, and uh, to some degrees more than a lot of Reformed people do. So I'm not making unnecessary distinctions, but I will say this. Either God is everything or he's nothing. Either God is to be viewed as the author and finisher of everything or he's to be viewed as not being the God of Scripture at all. You can have various gods of your own imagination. You can make up various gods that are appealing to you, that are pleasing to you. And, and I fear that this is what many uh, in the evangelical church today have done. They've constructed a God of their own making who does not resemble at all the God of Holy Scripture. And they will pay a price for that. Much better to let the Scripture speak. Let God reveal Himself and you conform to that instead of demanding that the Word conform to your own way of thinking, as many have done. Sometimes you'll hear people appealing to the universe. You hear that? I'm sending good vibes. I've asked the universe to help you. What? Which parts of the universe? What do you mean by that? The universe itself is impersonal. How can the universe help me? Well, you know what they're doing? They're suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness because they don't want to come across as religious. You hear people say that too. You know, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm just not very religious. What does that even mean? It means nothing. Again, certain individuals want to define their little g-god on their own terms. But they also take great comfort in the idea that their god is not a judge who is sovereignly in control of their destiny. That's just a bridge too far in their estimation. What they refuse to acknowledge, though, is that the one true god the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sovereign, self-existing, eternal, triune God who not only created but transcends all that has been created. He has, in fact, made Himself known. He can be known. Some of you will recall our studies in systematic theology where we went over theology proper in the very beginning and we talked about the various arguments that are made for the existence of God. And understand, I understand that these are not necessarily scriptural arguments, but they do appeal to man's ability to reason. They do appeal to man's faculty of being able to put two and two together. Let me go over those very briefly this morning. We're not going to do the same as we did during that study. Let me just summarize these for you. First, there's the cosmological argument. And this argument is based on the reality that since a cosmos exists, you're living in it. You see it all around you. It's not a computer program. Yep, people believe that too. Since a world exists, because something cannot come from nothing, there must be an original cause for the world's existence. This is the same deduction we make whenever we look at a watch. Kids, let me ask you, you young ones, where'd this come from? Most of you are like, I don't know. I don't know what brand it is. Generally speaking, where did this come from? Was this made in a factory? You think real people sat down, you young kids, you think real people sat down and put this together? calibrated it so that it tells time? Somebody answer me. You don't think this was put together by real people? Machines. 
All right, smarty pants. Who made the machines? Somebody put it together. It would be foolish to say, you know, I walked past this, this place where they make parts for a watch and the place blew up and this fell right on my wrist. That'd be foolish. It'd be absurd to believe that, right? And yet you look at the world around you, which is infinitely more complex than this watch, and people attribute that to just random causation. Just a natural occurrence of things. Given enough time, this would have just come into being. It's insane. Think about the human cell. Just one cell. Think about the odds, or the lack thereof, that all of these chemical components would come together and amass themselves in just the right configuration as to produce one, I'll go even further, one part of one cell. Impossible. Not improbable. Impossible. So the cosmological argument says, look at all this around you. To believe that this just happened to come into existence on its own is impossible. It's absurd. Somebody much brighter than I used the example of monkeys and typewriters, right? You put 10 million monkeys in a big warehouse with 10 million typewriters and just tell them just type their whatever they, you know, to argue that all of this came into existence by chance is the same odds that it would take for one of them to produce one of Shakespeare's sonnets given enough time. What are you going to get? I don't care if it's 10 million years from now. What are you going to get? <laughs> Nothing. Why? Because monkeys are typing on typewriters, which they're not very good at. The teleological argument. Well, the teleological argument just carries the cosmological argument a little further. The teleological argument, based on the uh, preface telos, means that everything that has been created has been created for a specific purpose. Everything has purpose. Everything has a function. And everything is functioning just in the right way for it to survive. Think about it. Our sun is 93 million miles away and it's positioned in just the right way to allow for life on earth to thrive. Right? I mean, it's killing us too. That's the fault. Right? Now we're being bombarded with all kinds of rays that are causing us to age. I've told you before, we're all being, being microwaved to death. But nonetheless, the fall notwithstanding, God has provided that sun at the exact distance it needs to be to maintain life on this planet. And not only that, think about the moon. 240,000 miles from Earth. If it were, I don't know, anything about this, but they say if it were even millimeters farther or closer, the tides would not be controlled as they are on the earth. We'd have massive tsunamis or no water at all in certain places because the tides are regulated by the moon, the cycles, so on and so forth. The earth's precise tilt on its axis is calibrated to give us four seasons. And yes, in Texas, we have four seasons. You just don't really notice them. But all of these things, you combine the cosmological argument with the teleological argument, there's no denying that someone has put it all together and is maintaining it in perfect order. That's what makes this pseudoscience called uh, climate change so laughable. Folks, I, I don't know if you're old enough, raise your hand if you're old enough to remember when by the year 2000 we were not to have an ozone layer, right? It's still there. It was getting bigger, now it's shrinking. Not too many years ago, 
by this time we would have no polar ice caps. Yeah, they're growing again. <laughs> right? The folly of man attempting to explain from his own finite mind what God himself has promised to keep in perfect equilibrium until he doesn't. How cavalier is man? These are all just evidences of man's depravity. Well, next we have the anthropological argument. Out of everything that God has created, man stands out as utterly unique. Why? Because instead of being mere biological accidents, as some suppose, instead of evolving over hundreds of millions of years, man is the imago Dei. We are all image bearers of God himself, blessed with certain communicable attributes that help us see that connection. Look out at creation all around you. Now, I know for some of you, your dogs seem almost human. No. As our resident veterinarian will tell you, they're not human. They react on the basis of stimulus and response. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> but every time I walk in the room, he wags his little tail. And it's because he wants something from you. I speak truth. The anthropological argument is that which posits that we are imbued with a conscience. We have intellect, emotion, and will, unlike the rest of creation. And closely related to that is the moral argument. The moral argument acknowledges that man has an acute awareness of, of uh, right and wrong. Every man who has ever lived has had a sense of morality. Have you ever thought about that? If man is only a biological anomaly, as many insist, where does this sense of moral turpitude come from? Where does this sense of moral obligation come from? Evolutionists cannot explain that. They, they, they can't. They might try. They sometimes sound very convincing when they tell you that man's moral component is really nothing but the byproduct of millions of years of trial and error. In other words, over eons of time, man just learned what worked and what didn't work. And in order to maintain the perpetuity of the human race, man's survivability, he chose to do that which was good as opposed to that which is evil. The evil thing didn't work out too well for him, but the good thing made sure that people lived longer, more children are born, the perpetuity of the human race continues. Given so much time to perfect himself this way, they say man has simply gotten really proficient in sustaining the human race. Is that true, though? Do you realize the world that you're living in right now is a testimony to gross devolution and not evolution? Folks, if we're getting better, I, I, I shudder to think what it'll be like in another hundred years. But throughout man's recorded history, certain absolutes, moral absolutes, have been universally held. I remember years ago, I've, I've told you about this before. I apologize if you're tired of hearing it, but years ago, Dan and I had the privilege of meeting um, Minkai. Uh, the Waodani or Aukan Indian who uh, was single-handedly responsible for killing Jim Elliott, um, the missionary that I believe it was 1959 uh, when he went to, uh, maybe before that, 56, went to the jungles of Ecuador to reach the previously unreached people known as the Waodani. And of course, on the beach there, uh, they were tragically killed. Minkai was the one who killed um, Jim Elliott, Roger Udarian, uh, Nate Saint, and the others. Nate Saint was taking Minkai on a tour of America back in the 90s. And we were at the Shepherds Conference when we met him there. And we were able to ask him questions. And among the questions that he was asked was if as a member of this previously unreached tribe, 
We asked him if his people knew that murdering members of competing tribes was wrong. And his answer was an emphatic yes. He couldn't explain how he knew. He said, we just knew that this was not good, that this was not acceptable. Of course, we know how they knew because Paul answers that question in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. Remember what he writes there? For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately, uh, alternately accusing or else defending them. The Waodani people knew that killing competing tribe members was wrong because God himself had implanted in them this internal moral witness concerning his existence and their accountability to him. They knew. They couldn't name him. But they knew that what they were doing was unacceptable to him. Finally, we have the ontological argument. This is a really weird argument. I'm not going to spend any time talking about it. The ontological argument simply posits that given that God uh, is perceivable, given that man can conceive of a perfect God, means that he must exist. I think that gets really to the root of this uh, evidence that God has implanted in every man. So what do all these arguments mean? What do they do? Well, they corroborate exactly what Paul writes here when he says that God's existence is evident within every man because God has made it evident to them. In fact, Paul actually summarizes these arguments in verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. As I thought about this, I thought about Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, where we read David's own acknowledgement of the wonder of God's creation that can only be adequately explained by his existence. What does he say there? Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. Listen carefully for the verbs. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Just look at the heavens. They'll tell you everything you need to know about God's existence. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day by day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice, voice is not heard. In other words, he's saying this is not an audible thing. You can't actually hear the stars screaming out for the existence of God. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. These verbs. Tells, declares, reveals, utters. These are David's own way of expressing that God has made himself evident in these things. What David's actually saying is that the visible creation screams of its invisible, omnipotent, and divine creator at every turn. Going back to the man I spoke of earlier, Minkai, I remember him being asked what the Waldani people believed about God prior to the arrival of the missionaries who had come to make him known. Interestingly, he reported that they all knew that such a God existed without batting an eye. Oh, we knew, we knew he existed. We didn't know his name. We didn't know nearly as much as you know as a Westerner who has 
12 Bibles in his home and has the opportunity to read the Bible all the time. We didn't know that, but we knew he existed. When asked in what way they knew that he existed, he actually said, it'd be silly to look at where we live, to look at the trees, to have the rain that quenches our thirst, to have the wildlife, the vegetation, the fish, to see the moon and the stars, to simply wake up every morning. It would be silly, this uneducated Waudani said, it would be silly to not believe in this God. When it was explained to him that many in the civilized world didn't believe, he simply shook his head and tried very hard to suppress tears. He wondered aloud how, how man can fall so far. What kind of evil man would look at all that God has created, all that God has blessed him with, and then deny that he even exists? It was something that was overpowering. And then to add on top of that, the availability of Scripture. He said, you have the markings of God, meaning the Scriptures. God has shown you in your own language. God has shown you throughout this big book that you call the Bible. God has explained to you the very things that we were denied for so many centuries. And yet we believed. It was one of the greatest tragedies that he could imagine. And just how evident has God made his existence to every man? Well, he's made it evident enough to where Paul says every man's without excuse. You don't believe in God, you have no excuse for not believing in God. This phrase, without excuse, is really interesting from a, a, a linguistic standpoint. In the Greek, this word refers to one who, in spite of the preponderance of evidence in front of him or her, they refuse to believe. But not only that, this represents one who is without an advocate. To say that one is without excuse means that you're without an advocate. The imagery here is of the man who's been convicted of a crime. There's ample evidence of his guilt. And he goes into a courtroom in which God himself is the judge. And not only does he deny all the evidence by which he stands condemned, he doesn't even have an advocate. In fact, he's turned down the court-appointed advocate. He's refused to even accept an advocate who might just get him off the hook. If you're an unbeliever this morning, if you still insist on living in feigned ignorance of the existence of the one true God who has made himself known so clearly in all that he has made, you need to know that he's real. And you need to know also that you're not without an advocate. We talked about that in the first hour this morning. God has appointed His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your advocate to intercede on your behalf. Which is why we read in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. This Jesus, according to the writer of the Hebrews, in Hebrews 7.25, this Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as John tells us, we read this again in our morning session. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Now again, to be clear on all this, while Paul is in fact speaking here of a failure to believe in God's existence, 
He's doing so as an indication that this is the root, this is the systemic cause of man's refusal to acknowledge Christ himself as God's lone provision for salvation. You can't believe in Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, God of very God, without acknowledging that God himself exists. It's just not possible. So if you want to connect the dots, that's how Paul's going to do it. He's saying, first, let's begin with man's suppression of the truth and unrighteousness and his denial of the existence of God. Go there. There's your systemic cause for why man will not believe in Christ. No man will ever believe in the one God has sent without first believing in God himself. That's how we connect the dots. As I close, let me, let me just point out again that you'll never know the Lord Jesus Christ unless and until he's pleased to reveal yourself to him in salvation. Or himself to you, sorry. And you know, this is something we're going to encounter as we go through this letter. Time and time and time again, Paul's going to explain, as we said in the introductory portion of this study, Paul's going to explain in painful detail what salvation is, how it's procured. But make no mistake about it. As much as Paul has to say about God's sovereignty and salvation, there's also very much an important element of human responsibility. And it begins with your decision to believe the evidence that God has so graciously laid out before you. I believe John Calvin said it best when he said this. And this sounds really strange because, you know, in our minds, John Calvin, he, well, he's the original Calvinist. Listen to this, though. If you're looking for a way to balance your gospel presentation, your own understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Just remember, John Calvin said this, it is a person's duty to seek God who comes to meet us in such a way that we can have no excuse for our ignorance. Surely nothing is more absurd than that people should be ignorant of their author, especially people who have been given understanding principally for this use. And we must also note the goodness of God in that he so familiarly introduces himself that even the blind may grope after him. Because of this fact, the blindness of people who are touched with no feeling of God's presence is even more shameful and intolerable. For God has not darkly shattered his glory in the creation of the world, but he has everywhere engraved such marks that even the blind may know them. Therefore, we see that people are not only blind, but blockheaded when being helped by such excellent testimonies, they profit nothing. You might indeed be without excuse this morning, but I'm here to remind you that no one in this room is without hope. And that's the truth. Wouldn't it be nice if God painted on the backs of all of his children a big E for elect? And we could go, as Spurgeon once said, lifting their shirt tails and saying, Oh, I can evangelize this one. Oh, not that one. God didn't do that. God commands us to sow the seed of the gospel indiscriminately in hopes that he might be pleased to save some. Are you doing that? Everyone with whom you come into contact is not hopeless because there's hope in Jesus Christ. Yeah, they might deny him. They might deny his father. But he's also able to turn that denial into faith. And how does he do that? Through human instrumentality. My prayer this morning is that someone 
optimally that many who came into this place this morning doubting the existence of God, doubting Christ's ability to save, even doubting their need for salvation. My prayer is that at this very moment, God would make himself real to you. That you would grasp and hang on tightly to the Lord Jesus Christ as God's only provision for salvation before it's too late. Well, in our next time together, we're going to talk about just how man has fallen so deeply into practical atheism as well as God's righteous response. Here's the other side of that warning. And this is why we're told today, if you hear his voice, believe. Today's all you've got. Because there's coming a time, and it doesn't necessarily end with your death. As we're going to discover next Lord's Day, Lord willing, there might come a time in your life where God gives you over. May that never be said of anyone in this room. Latch on to the hope. His name is Jesus. And he will save to the uttermost all who draw near.